0: How common are fertility challenges? How often do um, people have trouble achieving pregnancies when they want to?
1: If it is less than 35 years of age, it is obviously lower at about 10%. But by the time you look at women between 35 and 40, that jumps up to 25%. And then after the age of 40, 40 to 44, because at 44 we cut off, at 40 to 44 it is one in three women. So as high as one in four to one in three women over the age of 35 have difficulty achieving a pregnancy.
0: In honor of Infertility Awareness Week, which is April 18th through the 24th this year, we are replaying one of our most popular episodes. In February 2020, I talked with Dr. Bala Bagvath about common causes of infertility and the range of treatment options available for people who are interested in expanding their families. Dr. Bhagvath is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in the UW Department of OBGYN and director of UW Health's Generations Fertility Care Clinic in Madison. He's also a member of the Building Families Alliance Wisconsin Steering Committee. You can learn more about this group focused on fertility-friendly policy in Wisconsin and defining statewide standards for fertility care at buildingfamilieswi.org. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Cast. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Bala Bhagavat to Wisconsin as the new Director of Generations Fertility Care. And... I'm very glad that you could join us for this episode of the Women's HealthCast.
1: I'm very excited to be here as well. Thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast.
0: I wanted to learn a little bit about infertility, common causes, common treatments, and you seemed like the perfect expert to have on to um, tell us more about this. So I guess I want to start with how we define infertility.
1: Traditionally, um, infertility has been defined as inability to conceive after a year of regular trying by the couple. Uh, That definition has slightly morphed in the recent times because of the recognition that after the age of 35, yes, women, from a physiologic standpoint, would take longer, but waiting for that long period of time may actually decrease their chances of achieving a pregnancy because we don't address any underlying issues quicker because their fertility is waning fairly fast compared to women who are younger than 35. So for that reason, now it's an accepted definition even by insurance companies that if a woman is over the age of 35, after six months of trying, she would be eligible to have infertility workup and possibly treatment as well. Uh, Suppose women younger than 35, but we still stick to the definition of a year of trying before you say there's a problem.
0: How common are fertility challenges? How often do um, people have trouble achieving pregnancies when they want to?
1: If it is less than 35 years of age, it is obviously lower at about 10%. But by the time you look at women between 35 and 40, that jumps up to 25%. And then after the age of 40, 40 to 44, because at 44 we cut off, at 40 to 44 it is 1 in 3 women. So as high as 1 in 4 to 1 in 3 women over the age of 35 have difficulty achieving a pregnancy.
0: What do we know about why age affects your likelihood of achieving a pregnancy? How are those two connected?
1: All women are born with a finite number of X. It's something that many don't do not Know or understand. This is a fundamental difference in physiology between men and women, as far as reproduction goes. Men make sperm every 72 days from scratch. Women, on the other hand, the n- highest number of eggs in their ovary was when they were inside their mother's womb. So when they were, when their mother was pregnant, five months pregnant with them, uh, is when they had the highest number of eggs. And by the time they were born into this world, it has already dropped down dramatically. And then from that time on to the time they actually start uh, having menses and start releasing the egg from the ovary, because until that time the egg is not released, it's further come down. And the recognition is it's, it's a continuum. It's not a, at the age of 35, suddenly it changes. But if you look at the Graphs and curves and ability to get pregnant. There is a marked decline that begins around the age of thirty-five to thirty-seven, and it pretty much plummets down to almost zero percent by the by the time somebody ages forty-four.
0: So it sounds like age is a big factor in fertility challenges. What are some other common causes of infertility?
1: Uh, interestingly, the, uh, today. Uh, the most common cause, roughly one in three couples who are tested for uh, problems achieving a pregnancy, it is due to the decrease or diminished ovarian reserve. That's the word we use, or the term we use, for the uh, decreasing number of eggs in the ovary. Um, The next common, interestingly, is male. Roughly one in four couples, there is a problem with the sperm. Either decreased mortality, decreased number, or combination of these, or even decreased number of normal-looking spots. So all these may be present, and that's roughly one in four couples. The very first IVF in 1978 was achieved because the woman had blocked tubes on both sides. It used to be a common condition, but today it's decreased And it used to be due to the um, sexually transmitted diseases that blocked the tubes off. With increased recognition of these and treatment today, only 1 in 10 couples actually have a problem to do with the fallopian tubes being blocked. Interestingly, we may um, perform tests on uh, the male and the female partner in the couple and find out that nothing is wrong. The tests, all the tests are completely normal. And we have a diagnostic term for it, we call it unexplained infertility. So we have tested everything and despite all the tests, we are unable to uh, figure out what is wrong. And there is still treatment for that as well. And uh, studies have shown that treatment still works in that that particular couple. Uh, Another common condition is having the eggs in the ovary but inability to actually release the eggs. It's called anovulation. It's typically associated with the diagnosis of polycystic ovary syndrome. A one in six women suffer from that, and that is reflected in our um, statistics as well. Roughly one in six couple, the problem is the inability to release the egg in, in the woman.
0: Are there any um, lifestyle factors? I think I had read something about smoking having an effect on fertility.
1: Absolutely. Smoking does have an effect on more so in the female partner than the male. Um, Studies have even shown that nicotine can be found around the eggs on sectioning the ovary, so it does deposit everywhere. Exactly how it causes it physiologically we don't know, but there is a correlation with decreased fertility. And therefore, we do advise our patients uh, obvious reasons and drug use as well. So, not to use drugs, not to be uh, smoking, and of course, uh, use alcohol in moderation. Uh, though there's no direct link between that and infertility per se. Over the years, obesity has been increasing, and that has also showed uh, has been shown to decrease fertility. But on the other end of the spectrum, when women exercise way too much, that can also make the appearance irregular and decrease the ability to get pregnant by decreasing or, uh, or preventing the release of eggs uh, from the ovary. So that's another lifestyle thing that can potentially affect the ability to achieve a pregnancy.
0: Are there lifestyle things for men that affect their, their sperm?
1: Interestingly, the only lifestyle thing that has been shown is smoking marijuana. So it it decreases, makes the sperm sluggish. Uh, And therefore, by decreasing the the, uh, speed with which the sperm can move, uh, it decreases the chance that the sperm will meet with the egg, resulting in a pregnancy. So that's the only thing that, for men, that has been directly linked. Uh, There's been no other direct links.
0: Is that the same as motility? Yes. Okay.
1: So decreased movements. I'm trying to keep it in simple, but yes, motility is the term we use when we actually report on the sperm parameters when we look, to, look under it on the microscope.
0: So it's kind of how well they move. Absolutely. So I'm I'm curious. I guess when when someone has kind of worked with their normal ob obgyn provider, um, and and figured out okay, we're having trouble achieving the pregnancy that we want. I think the next step is probably to see a fertility specialist. Um, what do their first appointments look like when they come to meet with you? What kind of questions do you ask and how do you kind of help figure out what to do next?
1: There are two ways patients reach us, um, or two stages I should say, in their treatment. One is when their ob decides, you know, you just go to the fertility specialist and start the investigation, investigation from scratch. And the other is they do the investigation, the preliminary investigation. They even start the treatment, the first phase, and then when that doesn't work, they send the patients to us. So uh, either way, it is the same thing. It's where we pick them up uh, to continue their management. So if the patient comes to us without having any investigation done, the first thing we need to know is, is it the sperm, is it the egg, or is it the uterus or the tubes? It's very simple. Um, In terms of the sperm, it's very easy as well. We just ask the man to produce us a sample and we can look under the microscope. And as you pointed out, we look at motility, we look at uh, the concentration of the sperm, how many millions uh, that is per milliliter, as well as how normal they look. Sometimes all that may be good. They may be moving fast, they may have plenty of sperm, but all of them may be abnormal at least about 10-14% of the sperm um, should be normal. I mean, you look under the microscope. When they are less than 4% normality, that's when we say, okay, that is too few normal sperm uh, to achieve a pregnancy. Even then, people can achieve pregnancy because all it takes is one sperm and one egg, but the probability starts going down in that situation. So that's one, we start with the male because the easiest, cheapest. Um, For the woman, we need to know if she is releasing an egg all the time, is the number adequate? Of course, the older they get, the higher the chance that the number won't be adequate. In the past, we had different um, hormonal tests that we used to do, and then um, in the recent times, uh, the most accepted are a combination of a single hormone called anti-mullerian hormone or AMH and then in addition to that we need to make sure that the tubes are open at least one tube needs to be open uh, to allow the sperm and the egg to meet and the uterus itself should be normal the uterine cavity Um, there can be any number of things that can affect the uterine cavity and make the pregnancy um, make it difficult for the pregnancy to, um, uh, to implant inside the uterus Uh, The common conditions we find are polyps. These are like skin tags that are present inside the uterine cavity. And uh, because women grow the lining and shed the lining on a monthly basis, the chances of making these polyps are higher as well. And so it's a fairly common condition. And the vast majority of time, uh, it does not cause any trouble at all. But there has been uh, studies that have clearly shown that in the presence of a polyp, the chances of achieving a pregnancy goes down. Again, it's not all-or-none phenomenon, but statistically, your chances are lower. And anytime a couple present to us with difficulty achieving a pregnancy, we want to cross the T's and dot the I's. So other things such as fibroids can cause um, or interfere with uh, the ability to get pregnant. Again, not all fibroids cause. Uh, a difficulty in achieving a pregnancy, but some particular ones—the ones that distort the cavity or are entirely present in the cavity—can decrease the ability to get pregnant. And to check that, we typically do something called hysterosalpingography, or HSG. Um, that's a dye test that's uh, done using X-ray.
0: Earlier, you mentioned a common, a, a fairly common um, condition in PCOS, and that polycystic ovary syndrome can have challenges with releasing eggs. It made me think of another fairly common gynecologic condition, um, endometriosis. If that's occurring in about one in 10 women, does that have any effect on their fertility?
1: Absolutely. And endometriosis does affect fertility as well. Um, It can, by purely blocking the tube sometimes it can affect the tubes to the extent that it can block the tubes off obviously cause difficulty in achieving a pregnancy but even if the tubes are open uh, there is a age for age a correlation between decreased ability to get pregnant and the presence of endometriosis
0: so once you've worked through what's causes an infertility for a patient or for a couple and they decide well we'd like to pursue a treatment to see if we can achieve a pregnancy What kinds of options are available to them? And I guess I'm kind of curious if there's sort of a a scale or a spectrum of options starting from maybe some lower intervention choices to more intensive treatments.
1: Very good. Um, So I can go back to the group of women who sometimes may be treated by their own OBGYN patients before they come. And the reason they do that is that very low-tier treatment that you can start with. Um, As we talked about earlier, one in six couples, the problem may be just release of eggs or inability to release the eggs. And in that scenario, it's easy to prescribe some tablets just for five days every month during the menstrual cycle. And that itself can overcome that um, blockage and allow the eggs to be released. And once the eggs are released, then they can achieve a pregnancy. Uh, It's very straightforward. No further monitoring is necessary. Uh, and if they get pregnant at the end of the month they know and they are successful if not they are not if it is unexplained as i explained to you in many patients it can be unexplained one in ten couples it's unexplained so if we don't know the reason interestingly giving them the same medication but at a slightly higher dose has been shown to improve their chances of pregnancy so that's called super ovulation because they are obviously ovulating, otherwise they wouldn't be unexplained, but super ovulation because we are further giving the medication to make sure more than one egg comes out. The danger with that, of course, is that you will have multiple pregnancies. Now you may have uh, twin pregnancies and occasionally even triple pregnancies using just these tablets. So that is the trade-off when you uh, manage these patients. The other thing that we, um, we normally start with that, at the very minimum, uh, we would give medications uh, to try and in- increase the number of eggs. So with unexplained patients, uh, um, we have shown that in addition to giving him the tablets for superovulation, by adding intrauterine insemination where we take the sperm from the male partner, concentrate it, and put it inside the uterus, we actually increase the chance further that they would achieve a pregnancy. The second tier, uh, which I personally, if I could, completely do away with, is using injections to um, ensure that the eggs, more than one egg, comes out. So the tablets, when we give to a patient, it basically cheats the brain into thinking the ovary is not working. And then, of course, one in six women with PCOS, it's truly not working. But even in the other women, how does it work? If there is unexplained infertility, they are actually uh, ovulating every month. How does this work? It's by cheating the brain into thinking that it's not working. And so the brain flogs the ovary with hormones that it makes uh, to make it work harder. So in a woman with PCOS, that flogging is enough to wake the ovary up and uh, make it release the egg. And in women where it is... Oh, it's working all the time it ensures that more than one egg comes out but why cheat the brain to make the hormone the hormone that the brain makes is called follicle stimulating hormone or fsh so we give the injection under the skin it's like taking insulin uh, even six-year-old children nowadays learn how to give themselves ins- insulin so even the most needle phobic fa- patient um, manages to Uh, administer this injection either herself or allow somebody in a household to do that for her. So by giving, there's only so much that you can cheat the brain into making this hormone at any given time. But when we manufacture it outside, we can give as much dose as we want. So therefore we can go with what's called supra-physiologic or more than normal physiologic quantities of this hormone under the skin. And that of course stimulates the ovary to make more than one egg. The danger, obviously, is multiple pregnancies. From a possibility of about 7% twin pregnancy with tablets, roughly, uh, you now have a 25% chance of having twin pregnancies using the injectables. With an almost unlikely but not unheard of chance of having triplet pregnancies using tablets, you now have a 1% chance of having Triplets, quadruplets, quintuplets, sextuplets, you name it, the numbers uh, have actually occurred in history. And that is the danger. And that's why I said at the outset, I would, if I had control, never use this injectables and IUI as a treatment.
0: What about higher intensity treatment options? Um, in my mind, I think of IVF. Uh, in vitro fertilization as like a more involved treatment. Um, tell me about IVF.
1: So in vitro fertilization, in, in, it was developed to bypass the tube because this, these group of women, and that first woman who had the baby, had both her tubes blocked and they were not able to open them up. So the only way her egg could be uh, uh, inseminated with a sperm is outside the body. First, they are primed with medications uh, under the skin, daily injections. And um, so when the follicles are big enough and we know that it most likely contains mature egg, at that point, we would stop stimulating the ovary. And we will now we can also give that hormone that uh, tells the ovary to release the eggs. So we can send the signal again, uh, injection either under the skin or in the muscle that tells the ovary to release the egg. And once we send the signal, we know it takes 36 hours to release the egg. So we have the time to get them into the clinic. We have procedure rooms. uh, Most clinics would now put the woman to sleep uh, using injectables only. So what we call as IV sedation. Takes about 10, 15 minutes max to go into each ovary and uh, uh, retrieve all the eggs from the ovaries. And then by the time they wake up, which is fairly fast now with the new anesthesia medications that are uh, present uh, we would tell them exactly how many eggs we got typically we aim to get 10 to 15 eggs Uh, rule of thumb out of the 10 to 15 eggs only 80 percent or 90 percent would be mature not all would be mature and out of the mature eggs about 90 percent would fertilize and then all those fertilize as we grow them in the petri dish today. today we try to grow them to day five to day seven In the past, it used to be two or three days. Again, technology has vastly improved today to the extent that we can grow them in culture over these number of days. Um, More embryos would fall by the wayside. They will stop growing or they'll be fragmented. So then we cherry pick and of the best-looking embryos on day five, six, or seven. Uh, Usually we transfer on day five. We don't transfer on day six or seven. But on six or seven, if there are more embryos growing, we would freeze them for later use, if there are any that are available.
0: So how long, I guess in, in particular with IVF, um, how long does that whole process take for one cycle, I guess? Is it called a cycle? Yes. Okay.
1: It's good Term- terminology is a cycle, and... Um, uh, Typically, from the day we start the injections uh, to egg retrieval, it's about 10 to 12 days. And then, as I mentioned, about five days of growth. That's another, let's say, 15 to 17 days. And then uh, about nine days later, we would check uh, to see if they are pregnant.
0: I guess in a more general sense, how long Do we have a sense of how long, on average, people spend receiving fertility care? How long they're kind of in the the process?
1: Very difficult question to answer. So there have been many lucky patients who would come to see us. They would institute the the, um, workup, as we call it, uh, to figure out if the tubes are open, etc., and lo and behold, and some of these tests, we'll first check that they are not pregnant before we do it, and we'll find out that they are pregnant. So they are, lucky, they are the lucky ones. So without even any treatment. And there are the other lucky ones where we would start them on the tablet. The first month on being on the tablet, they would get pregnant. They'll be done. But those are few. Unfortunately, uh, it's a succession. 10% of women uh, achieve a pregnancy with one treatment cycle generally with tablets. So at the end of three months three out of ten women is cumulative three out of ten women that get pregnant but we also know that if you continue more than three cycles as you spend more and more months trying the same treatment the chance of success starts going down very quickly. So for that reason we would try three months of one particular treatment and if it doesn't work we move on to the next Uh, treatment uh, modality. Um, Do we achieve a success in all the patients who come through our doors? Unfortunately not. There is a small percentage where we cannot uh, achieve that success for them using the normal method and typically that's because their egg quality or the egg number is low. With age, another thing that I didn't talk about is quality of the embryos. Not only the quantity, but also the quality that suffers.
0: I want to ask about, um, I guess, success rates. And in particular, how do we, how do you define success when you're working with a, a patient or a couple?
1: That's an easy a- answer and a difficult answer. Uh, the easy part of the answer is success is when they get pregnant. And in my uh, personal dictionary, success is when they are pregnant with one baby. If they have two or more then to me that's a relative success in fact I consider it almost like a failure. As an infertility doctor my primary aim is to allow the couple to have a family start a family or complete the family if they already have a child and to do so in a very healthy and, um, uh, uh, and sustainable manner to have twins and triplets is not good either for that individual couple or for the community at large because it has societal costs to have these big multiple pregnancies and then the problems they occur and the healthcare costs that uh, go with that. In terms of uh, what's the success rate, that's a little harder because individually it depends on many things. There are multiple factors. But broadly speaking, as we alluded to earlier, it's maternal age, maternal age, maternal age. That has, if you ask me, give me one thing that you can go with, I would say maternal age. Of course, providing other things are normal. If the man has no sperm, it doesn't matter what age the woman is. But generally speaking, less than 35 years of age, the chance of success is very, very good. And with the IVF, with one cycle, It's roughly about 45% chance of success uh, with one IVF cycle in a woman less than 35 years of age. And as the woman's age goes up, and there's a very clear decrease in that percentage, coming down to almost 0% by the time she's 44. So in a span of really really nine years from the age of 35 to 44, it goes from about 45% to 0% chance of success.
0: Knowing those numbers and hearing um, the the many, many steps in fertility treatments, it sounds kind of overwhelming in some ways or um, maybe a little emotionally difficult. And I'm wondering if clinics, um, especially your clinic, what kind of supports do you have for people's mental health, not just their physical health during this process?
1: Excellent question. Very intuitive. Um, yes, the stress level that these couples experience is incredibly high so much so, studies have shown that women who are being told are given a diagnosis of infertility have higher stress level than women who are given a cancer diagnosis so it is so hard for many people to even grasp or understand because they don't face it you know uh today maybe one in 15 or one in 20 uh couple face that, but the other, the vast majority, do not, and therefore, they do not understand the implications. In fact, um, the World Health Organization, as well as ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has categorized infertility as a disease. It's not just a condition. It's a disease. It's like thyroid or other problems you may have, Um, and that's something that... Policymakers and politicians still don't understand. Um, even within the, our own state, we don't have state-mandated treatment for infertility, which is uh, unfortunate. There are Thankfully, other states, there are 10 states in the U.S. right now that are mandated that all insurance, as long as you have insurance, it should cover infertility like it would cover your common cold and its management. And that is the right thing. And hopefully we will get to that one day in this state as well. But um, to get to your question of stress and how do we deal with it, we uh, have an in-house psychologist, which many clinics don't have. But we here have the luxury of uh, having our psychologist in-house who sees our patients. All our patients are, are mandated to see that because we recognize that health, you know, he, we are here to develop and bring on healthy families, and healthy families include mental health, which is so important, and to get them through the difficult times as treatments sometimes fail, and as we move on to the next phase, um, uh, our psychologist helps guide them through that process and overcome the challenges.
0: We've talked a lot about um, people who are coming specifically for because they have an infertility condition. Um, but I th- are there other patients that you guys support here that Generations um, helps with things? I'm thinking like fertility preservation before cancer treatments that might um, a- affect your future fertility or, you know, earlier when you mentioned some chromosomal abnormalities, um, what kind of, do you support people with um, genetic conditions that, Sure. yeah, tell me about that.
1: Of course, um, yeah, um, our goal at Generations is, our, our mission is to ensure that all people can have a family, a healthy family, and therefore propagate their own generations. And that's how our name has come about, Generations. We're here to foster healthy propagation of generations. And that includes women who have a diagnosis of cancer and men. Um, cancer diagnosis in the past if they lived it was considered great Uh, oh gosh you lived through cancer today it's not just that it's quality of life after you've uh, come through the treatment and that quality of life includes propagating their own generations and therefore we recognize and help these uh, men and women who have cancer diagnosis to save their sperm or the egg um, so that once the treatment is over Uh, they can use those saved sperm or eggs in order to have a... Not all cancer treatment affect their uh, uh, sperm production or egg production, but many do. And that scenario, saving these eggs or sperm is very helpful for them to have a family later on. And we've had many successes in that realm. In addition to that, today, you know, as I was explaining, more and more women uh, are having their first baby after the age of 30. And therefore, we have women who, after the age of 35 or, or even 40, and that is something that is the nature of how life is today in 2020. And therefore, uh, we allow what's called elective egg preservation so these are women who have no cancer diagnosis but decide that at this point in time they're not ready to start a family but in order to keep that option open they would uh, undergo uh, IVF cycle but sometimes if they have a partner they may create an embryo and save them or if they don't have a partner they would just go and uh, uh, freeze the eggs. Thankfully you know, five six years ago we was not mainstream the technology to freeze the egg was not available uh, because the egg is the largest cell in the human body the sperm is one of the smallest Uh, sperm does not have any cytoplasm cytoplasm being largely made of water and water when it freezes will form crystals and burst uh, the shell of the egg so the egg contains predominantly of cytoplasm therefore freezing the egg resulted in the egg literally getting destroyed as you freeze and thaw it. But technology now has uh, come so far that we are able to freeze eggs as well, which is good for women because they could never, sperm freezing and sperm banks have been around for eons, but the egg freezing is a fairly new thing. And I'm really glad that technology is allowing these women to take control of their lives as well. Um, Who else do we help? Um, we help same-sex couples to have a family. They are people and they deserve to have a family too. Uh, so both uh, same-sex women as well as men. Uh, at Generations, we haven't helped same-sex men yet, but come May or June, uh, we are on track to uh, help them as well because they would need gestational carriers and that's one program Although all other programs have existed here, uh, that's one thing in the last 10 years we have not managed to do. But I think as we come to the 10th anniversary, uh, we are moving forward to providing that service as well. So I am really uh, glad that I am here at this juncture to help these uh, couples achieve their dream of having a family.
0: So you very recently joined us, and what What made you excited to move here and um, become the new Director of Generations and join our academic department at the UW?
1: Um, First and foremost, this is a wonderful clinic. Uh, It has huge potential, and it has grown steadily over the last 10 years. And I was honored to be invited to come and lead it and take it to the next level. Uh, That in itself, my colleagues, um, Dr. Stanich as well as Dr. Cooney, are amazing doctors. They all have their own niche and uh, um, I felt that I could work with them to grow this uh, facility further. Um, Dr. Rice, who's the chair, is uh, amazing amazing visionary and uh, her vision uh, was in sync with my own and I felt that I could make her vision come true as I uh, work towards my own vision coming true as well. In addition to that, the university and the city are really wonderful places to be at. It's a combination of all the wonderful things, and uh, the staff at Generations Fertility Care are very dedicated, really hardworking, wonderful, wonderful people. So it is really a pleasure to be here and to lead them all towards our next phase.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming, and thank you for sitting down with me today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. gyn This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.